Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. On October 7th, I'm going to be releasing a Kindle ebook called A World-Class Transportation System. Delves into the financing of transportation improvements at the national and state level, and some of the different approaches we can take now that we have built out the interstate system and are in a period where we need to mature and get more productivity out of the things that we built. This Kindle book is going to be priced at $3.95, so we've made it real affordable, but it is going to be available for free to our members. If you are a member by October 1st, we're going to get a hold of you and let you know how you can get this Kindle book for free. If you would like to become a member of Strong Towns, go to strongtowns.us and get signed up today. Thanks, everybody. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This week I have, returning to the podcast, Jim Kunstler, author of The Geography of Nowhere, The Long Emergency, and The World Made by Hand novels. His latest book, A History of the Future, is now out. I got it. The day it came out, I read it the next day. I loved it. Jim, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hi, Chuck. Glad to be here. This is the third time you've been on. I think you've been on more than just about anybody else. So welcome. Yikes. <laughs> I hope I'm not wearing out my welcome. <laughs> not at all. I've got a lot of stuff I want to talk about with this. I thought it was a fascinating book, and there's a lot of depth that I want to explore. But I think it might be best in just your words to kind of set it up and let people know what you're doing with the World Made by Hand novels and, and maybe where we're at with this okay. one. Okay. Well, I had written this book called The Long Emergency, and it was a nonfiction book. After I wrote that, I wanted to get my point across about where the world was going with all these these problems in a very tactile and sense-oriented way. Having had a lot of experience writing fiction, I uh, did publish nine or ten novels before. You know, I wanted to write a bunch of novels about the post-petroleum post-economic collapse future. So I undertook this job. I wrote the first one, World Made by Hand. I decided that I wanted to write a series and, and that it would comprise one book for each of the four seasons. The current one is called A History of the Future. The second one was called The Witch of Hebron, and it took place in, in uh, the fall around Halloween. The third one, History of the Future, takes place around Christmas time in my little fictional town in upstate New York. I'm working on the fourth one now, which is set in the spring. I'm really just trying to depict what it would feel like to live in this particular future. One of the things that you start out with in this book, and that is kind of a focal point, really, till the very end of the book, is this new Union Tavern, this place no. that uh, everyone's come together and, and kind of set this thing up. The New Faithers run it. What's the importance of this place, and why did you choose to focus on this as kind of a central place in the book? It's a feature of the story. I don't know if it's that central, but it's, it's a feature of the story. What I've got set up in this town of Union Grove, New York, about 200 miles away from New York City, it's become very isolated from the mainstream of, of whatever's left of America, which we find out in this book. Mm -hmm. 
I've set up a situation where we have the regular townspeople, and then there's a group of sort of Jesus cultists, evangelical Christians who have come up from the disorders of the South to find refuge in the more quiet and tranquil Northeast. And they're led by this character named Brother Job, who's kind of a combination of uh, Boss Hogg and Captain Ahab. You know, he's kind of a comical figure, but he's got some dark depths to him. And, and some mysterious depths to him. And uh, one of the things that he's uh, ambitious to do is to open a tavern. His particular cult is not against drinking or having fun. And um, <laughs> so he he decides to open a tavern, and uh, he you know he does, and it, it becomes in this town that is full of depressed people who have been disappointed and discouraged by the broken promises of technology and progress generally, you know, the promise of continual progress. He wants to bring these people together and, and uh, you know, cheer them up and, and uh, kind of integrate his group into the life of the town. It is interesting because the last two World Made by Handbooks, very vivid in terms of things falling apart. And this one, to start out with them kind of building things back together, you've got the new laundry that's up and operating. You've got all these things that they're starting to put together. How important is it to look at that kind of rebirth of a place as part of the whole series for you? Oh, well, it's very important. I was trying to make a a very clear point about how mentally disorienting it would be to enter this period of history and the tremendous disappointments that people would encounter with uh, really what you could call the all the baggage of the Enlightenment. Right. You know, these, these are people who have been let down by uh, science and technology and empiricism and logical positivism and, you know, really everything that the 20th century was all about. And one of the reasons I brought the Christian cult into the story was to illustrate that, you know, there would be groups of people interested in the re-enchantment of everyday life in a kind of medieval sense. You kind of set up three, I'll say, positive or three ways of getting on that result in you surviving in these books, as opposed to some of the stragglers and the people that try to make their way through. There's the townspeople, uh, Robert Earl. And Lauren Holder and, and, and that whole group that have kind of assembled to independently make things work. You've got the New Faithers, and then you've got the Stephen Bullock kind of plantation system. What do those three things say about human nature, in a sense? Well, what they say is that societies are emergent and that they self-organize according to the circumstances that the time and place presents to them. And in this kind of transitional, provisional time, things are self-organizing in various ways. Mr. Bullock is running a plantation on more or less a feudal model. You know, he's taken in all these families and he's sort of the, you know, the feudal lord of a large piece of property and he's organized all the activities on it. And then there are the townspeople who are just kind of floundering and struggling. And then there are the new faith people who have already gotten over their disappointments with, you know, science because they never really fully subscribed to it in the first place. But they also bring a certain amount of skill and earnestness to the the situation of having to now move forward and create a, you know, a viable way of life. So... 
One of the points I guess I'm trying to make is that uh, things might work out in, in a way that will surprise people, that, you know, we will try various ways of getting on. Not all of them will be what we expect. I've created this uh, cult of you know, evangelical Christians who play a big part in the story, but I myself am not at all religious, and I'm looking at them strictly from, you know, another angle. I find your depiction of the new faith people fascinating, and Brother Job in particular, in the last two books too, and this one, to me, he is the character I'm most drawn towards and fascinated with. He is this, as you describe him, the boss hog type of figure, but he also... He has this dark side to him, but he also has this very, I want to say, upright and kind of, you know, moral side to him. Well, how did this guy emerge from your writing? That's a very good question because, I, I, you know, I originally set him and his group up to sort of be possibly the villains of the piece, but that very quickly changed. I decided I liked him a lot. Uh, I like him it, it too. It came from a bunch yeah. of places. I mean, one of the places that came from was when I was a young newspaper reporter, I spent a few years specializing in investigating religious cults. And this was back in the early 70s when there was a lot of that action going on, you know, with groups like the Children of God and the Scientologists and the, you know, the Moonies and, and a lot of uh, just sort of freelance evangelical fraudsters and charlatans who were, you know, hooking young people with uh, trust funds into their, into their fold and then swindling them. So I was sort of fascinated by that whole scene, and it was something I felt equipped to write about. But, but the more I wrote about Brother Job and his group, the more I got the feeling that they had the equipment to be successful in this situation than the people who had really sort of been defeated by their wishful thinking about technology. A lot of that was simply because they're a group, maybe because they're together? Well, that's a good question. Well, because, you know, you don't really get into the spiritual beliefs of this group beyond the no. kind of psychic queen bee personality that they have. And, you know, Brother Job as kind of a leadership figure. I've looked at these well, guys. Well, they do proselytize a lot. They and, do. And, they but, do. But, yeah. but what happens, you know, when they do that, there are many scenes where somewhere in the course of the scene, they ask these people, do you have Jesus? You know, blah, blah, blah. Right. And all the people respond by basically saying, we're not interested. You know, we don't care. And But they don't antagonize these people beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because they seem to, as with, you know, everybody, they seem to have adapted to the world in, in yeah. a sense. Like, you know, they're the ones actually making the place run in a lot of ways. Actually, let me try to answer your question from another angle myself. Go ahead. I, I think what I'm really trying to illustrate is that because I believe we're heading into what I would call a new medievalism, that, you know, it really requires a, a kind of a medieval mind in order to succeed in an, a newly medieval milieu. And that's pretty much what these guys have. Right, right. That's it a, doesn't make them less human, but it makes them uh, a kind of alien and foreign to our sensibility of, you know, our, uh, having been immersed in modernity and, and all of its baggage. You know, they seem kind of foreign to us. You described writing to me once years ago when I was kind of getting started doing this as this process of discovery, like you learn by writing. As being someone who had researched these cults before, and I've heard you talk about that, it's really interesting, but now actually having to put yourself kind of mentally in, in the new faith, Brother Joe mindset, has it taught you something about medieval thinking? Has it 
you know, opened up your mind a little bit on, on some of those things? Well, it hasn't made me more religious. No, I didn't. <laughs> but no, I, I, I take your point and um, it's true. I, I think what it has done is that it's impressed on me how important the re-enchantment of daily life is and, and also impressed on me how disenchanting modernity has been. In fact, you know, you could state kind of categorically that one of the major diminishing returns of technology is the disenchantment of daily life, you know, and, and the alienation of the human spirit from uh, just the fact of being alive. And that emerged from, you know, writing three books and, and now being in the fourth book. And I, I'm constantly making discoveries about what these people are up to and what motivates them. And, and it is very much a self-informing process. You know, the first sentence tells you what the next sentence is going to be. And the first paragraph tells you what the next paragraph is going to be. And the first chapter tells you what the next chapter is going to be. And I don't sit there and plot it all out, you know. Sometimes it works out, you know, very, very magically and in, in a way that I'm... Uh, kind of mystified by, but I'm very grateful for. The second book, The Witch of Hebron, practically wrote itself, and, and it, it emerged symphonically as a kind of uh, woven textile of plots and themes involving many different people and different stories, and it all came together magically at the end uh, in a way that I never really planned. So I have a lot of respect for whatever the, that unconscious process is. Along those lines of enchanting life and discovering that you almost obsess about food and music and the kind of flavors of this world that you've created. Why do you get so into that stuff? Why is that such well, an important part? As of I this? said, I'm I'm trying to reach readers in the most direct sensory way possible about uh, you know what it's like to live in this world and and those are two of the most direct ways that you can do it so it's as simple as that you know I happen to know a lot about food and you know when I was a starving bohemian for about 20 years before you know before I turned 40 years old and I was broke uh, I spent a lot of time working in restaurants and and so you know I, I know what to do with stuff you know, it's as simple as that. That's the, you know, that's the way to get through their skull through a different pathway than just, you know, didactic information. Sure, sure. You make it sound like, and when I read this stuff, I almost feel like I would be eating better in a world made by hand. You know, like, oh, my, yeah. like my culinary experience is going to be far superior. If I'm a foodie, I want the world to enter post-apocalypse. Well, yeah, because, you know, you'll be eating far less technologically mediated food and nutrition. You know, these people are eating real food. They're not eating cheese Whiz and, and Doritos, which are not even foods. They're sort of figments of food. <laughs> oh, come on. I'm, I love my Mountain Dew, Jim. Well, the cheese doodle is, after all, the official food of the long emergency. Yeah, that's exactly true. Yes. <laughs> I've eaten a cheese doodle in your honor many times. <laughs> In this book, a mystery person shows up. I don't know how much you want to reveal in this. You, know, you start out the book by saying someone's coming home, and, and it doesn't take long to get into this. But you, you kind of almost have this parallel story going that is an well, explanation. A story within a story. A story within a story, yeah. That, that is an explanation of what the rest of the United States is kind of shaking up to be like. Yeah. In the first two books, I made references to the sun 
of the main character, Robert Earl. Uh, Robert's about 45 or so, and his son's uh, 19 when he walks off into uh, the interior of America with his boyhood friend, Evan Holder, who's the son of Lauren Holder, the congregational minister. The two of them set out before the first book starts, and we kind of wonder about what's happened to them. And, they, you know, in the third book, Daniel the son of Robert, returns home alone on Christmas Eve. And he's in very poor shape. And we uh, eventually learn where he's been. And where he's been is uh, he, he's had many adventures along the Erie Canal and uh, in the Great Lakes. He's uh, fallen into the, into the bosom of the remnant of the federal government, which is kind of uh, composed mostly of the intelligence service that, that remains. He eventually goes down to a breakaway republic centered in Tennessee, really composed of this, the states of the Mid-South. It's kind of a Tea Party utopia. <laughs> yeah. The way you describe it, they spend basically their last little bit of resources having NASCAR races. Yeah. <laughs> they call themselves the Foxfire Republic. They're led by a former country singer slash TV evangelist named Loving Morrow, a woman about 50 years old who has a weakness for young men. Who's a babe too, right? She's a babe. Yeah. But, you know, she's a very charismatic figure. Uh, I like to refer to her as Dolly Parton meets Hitler. <laughs> yeah. And so Daniel tells the story of the Foxfire Republic. Uh, Foxfire Republic is kind of in a state of perpetual war with the remnant of the U.S. federal government and another breakaway republic that's formed in the Deep South called that kind of a new Africa that's led by the former mogul of a check-cashing empire. And they're fighting over Chattanooga and Atlanta at the moment. And on the other side, the Foxfire Republic is trying to lay siege to Cincinnati so they can control the river traffic on the Ohio River. I'm trying to make a portrait of, uh, you know, one of the, the possible ways that the United States might disintegrate and devolve into separate regions and how the conflicts might play out. And I haven't been too shy about it, you know, about painting the, the scene to be a certain way that might disturb people. Compared to the Northeast, the nice tranquil town that you've got, you know, where they have problems, and they have things going on, but it's quite a juxtaposition. You, you'd certainly much rather be in Union Grove uh, yeah. than anywhere out in that craziness. Yeah. Yeah. In Union Grove, when you look at the way that people are getting on. I, I want to ask you some questions about the townspeople themselves, because you, you introduced, and I, I don't remember him in any of the other books, but the Andrew Pendergast character. Yeah, he's, uh, he was on the fringe of the, the other books. Was but, he? Okay. Yeah. The name was familiar, but I didn't remember him real well. But in this book, he basically develops this, I'll let you describe it, but interesting relationship uh, <laughs> with someone to, in a sense, their mutual benefit. It's not a relationship that we would respect in, you know, the year 2014, but you get into their psyches a little bit and show that, you know, this is a relationship that maybe work for them in this world. Well, it was an interesting opportunity to uh, explore part of, uh, you know, the current American psyche and carry it forward. Andrew Pendergast is a gay man, but he is a guy who uh, saw what was coming 
and he prepared for it ahead of time and he he moved from the New York City world to the world of upstate New York to this little town before the collapse occurred and basically set himself up. He's in a situation now where he's entered a relationship with a, a lost young man who who had the intention of assaulting him originally, but he's been sort of disarmed. And what evolves in this relationship is not that uh, these people become lovers, these two men don't become lovers, is that Andrew adopts this young man as his servant. And what I'm trying to illustrate in this is that uh, there may be surprising relations between people in the world of the future that right now are inconceivable. Here you have a character who most people would expect to express his social position sexually. And in fact, I've already encountered a a lot of consternation from gay readers who think that I'm dissing them by not making this character, you know, explicitly preoccupied with his sexual, the sexual side of his character. I was on uh, Kamo's Sea uh, Realm podcast. I was uh, well, I was on it, but then two weeks later, it, he had two gay men on it who were bashing me in my book for creating this character. But what I was trying to illustrate is that you know we're we're moving into a society that, rather than being sort of sexually stratified, is much more likely to become hierarchically stratified. And that it's something we're not prepared for and that we're we're going to be living in a world where people are going to have to work for other people to offset the fact that work will not be done by machines anymore. And so this was just my attempt to illustrate that rather fine point. You know, so far, I'd say that either I didn't uh, carry it off very well, or people don't appreciate it, or people can't, you know, there's some kind of a failure of imagination out there to think that life won't be very different. I actually took away exactly what you described. Jared Diamond wrote a book, came out like a year and a half ago, called The World Before Tomorrow. It was about primitive cultures and and how Mm -hmm. they lived and what we can learn from them. And he spent time in New Guinea and and other areas studying these places. And and one of the fascinating things he said is that in the United States today, we don't worry about food, but we obsess about sex. Sex is the thing that we we don't have enough. But if you go to a primitive culture, nobody worries about sex. You have sex anytime you want. You know, there's consequences to it that maybe we don't have, but what they obsess about is their next meal. Where are we going to eat? How are we going to get food? It seems to me like you, in a sense, captured that a little more, you know, in the Pendergast character, you started to get into, to me, the realm of where J.R. Diamond suggests primitive cultures get to, where is today all these things that we use to define ourselves kind of go away and you're more worried about your next meal and how you're going to get along tomorrow. Exactly. You know, I I, I guess um, I did make my point. I I did not read Jared Diamond's latest book, but, um, you know, maybe we arrived at a similar conclusion independently. Yeah. Yeah. One of the central, and I don't want to impose a theme, but to me, it seemed like this was book was a lot about a struggle for justice. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you have the townspeople's sense of what justice is. You have Brother Job's sense of what justice is. And, and you have the Stephen Bullock sense of what justice is. And, and you see in a small way, these all play out in, in little kind of subplots and subtwists around the central narrative. 
how is justice going to be meted out in a medieval society? Well, this theme has been running through all three books, really, and and started, you know, it was kind of at the center of the first World Made by Hand novel. And the question really is, when, when the institutions of law fail, what happens in this imaginary world? The, the courts are no longer functioning. The, there's really no police to speak of. The levels of government have all kind of dissolved. They don't even have property law anymore in the sense that we know it. People are, you know, are just appropriating, uh, you know, abandoned property and living in it without title and people aren't paying much attention to that. Now, in this particular book, there's been a murder in town uh, and a particularly horrific one committed by a woman under very strange and difficult circumstances. She was basically, uh, she had developed meningitis and some months later had become psychotic. And then the question was, what do we do with her? And how do we try her? And uh, Stephen Bullock, the plantation owner, had been elected magistrate. That was their way of you know, redefining a kind of a uh, legal and social role that hasn't really existed in America for quite a while. But it's kind of an all-encompassing, you know, authority to decide legal cases and, and to set up the procedures to do it. And um, Stephen Bullock is mostly annoyed by his duties, but, uh, you know, he also feels compelled to deal with it. And th- they're faced with a... Well, he has a history of meeting out justice. I know in the prior books, oh, yeah. you know, he had his farm attacked and hung eight people out on the road so people could see, right? He's almost like old Roman kind of justice. Yeah, he suffered a home invasion in the second novel, and he decapitated two of these guys and hung the rest of them uh, from trees and left them up there until they rotted. So he's, yes, he's developed a pretty severe attitude about this, and it carries on through all four books. But in in this one, you know, the main issue seems to be if we plead this woman not guilty by insanity, we don't have any place to put her. You know, there are no mental wards anymore. There's there's no hospital to stick her in. There's no, there there isn't a prison for the criminally insane. There's, There's nowhere to put her. And so Bullock has come to the conclusion pretty quickly that, you know, if she's convicted, he's going to have to hang her. Brother Job is uh, struggling with this, and eventually he, it's up to him to resolve it. Yeah, that's the interesting thing, because Brother Job in prior books has, let's say, taken matters into his own hands a couple times. And, you know, is someone here whose conscience is kind of explored through this thing? A lot of people have complained about the supernatural elements of uh, the world made by handbooks. And really what's going on here is not all that complicated or even that mysterious. I've got this character at the center whose name is Mary Beth Ivanhoe. She's, she's called the Queen Bee sometimes. She's called Precious Mother. She's in some way the, the kind of spooky leader of this group. And she's also bedridden. And it turns out that she's an, an epileptic clairvoyant. You know, she's she's been in a car crash 10 years ago that that has altered her brain. And she kind of sees things. Uh, she has some kind of powers that we don't. And Brother Job has some powers of his own, but he's mostly a talented hypnotist. And, you know, I, in that, I'm kind of reviving a device from some very, very early American novels, things like Charles Brockton Brown's novel, Wheeland, that was published in something like 1795. It's just a tradition of 
introducing a certain kind of supernatural event that um, I wanted to you know return to, especially as I was trying to get across the point of the re-enchantment of the world and introduce elements that were just not explainable by, you know, science, technology, and, and uh, the Enlightenment. So that's what's going on with those people. And in the meantime, Brother Job is trying to sort out the meeting out of justice. I totally got that. You go back and you look at medieval times, or I've read a lot of first century type work in Israel and the things that were going on in Palestine at the time. There are a lot of things, you know, pre-enlightenment that people just accepted as being mystical or spiritual or unexplainable. And yeah. in, the, in the post-enlightenment world, we try to explain everything with science, try to find a basis for it. And I guess one of the things that I just, I will admit in the first book, like, okay, hang on a sec. And I spent a lot of time <laughs> thinking about it. And by the time I got into the second and the third books, I was fully accepting the fact that this is a post-post-enlightenment world where you know, we're just going to have things that maybe are a tad outside of what can be easily explained away. Yeah, I th- we're so immersed in modernity. And it's it's so thoroughly bred into our bones now that uh, it's hard to imagine a different way of seeing the world. And um, you know, I myself am a pretty modern person. You know, I'm I'm not immune from any of it, but I'm I am trying to depict how the transition would work once people you know were truly let down by all that. Uh, you know, it's not an accident that the book I wrote after the long emergency was called Too Much Magic. Uh, wishful thinking technology and the fate of the nation, because you could see that uh, the, the belief in technology had become kind of a competing religion of its own. Right. And that it was going to be a religion that left people feeling really swindled and that they would return to uh, an earlier way of seeing the world before they could get back to any kind of, you know, neo-modern condition, if we ever do. Right, right. Knowing you now, I mean, I knew who you were when I read the first World by Hand novel, but now I feel like I know you to a degree. I mean, we've had enough conversations and been around each other enough. I can't help but read these books and think about you in this place. Do you picture yourself in Union Grove? Not necessarily one of the characters, but can you picture yourself living in this place and thriving there? Well, I do have a very vivid sense of uh, creating an alternate reality when I'm in that groove, you know, and, and I, I have to enter it regularly every day. One of the things about my method of working is that, you know, I believe that you have to show up and you have to you have to engage in the task. And my task is to engage in the continual creation of this world that, uh, you know, that I've decided I was going to do for four books. So now I'm, I'm showing up every day and writing the fourth and I'm, I'm every bit as immersed in that volume and that, that set of stories in that world as I was in the previous three. You've talked about the need to make yourself useful in a place like this. I can almost quote you directly in saying, you know, in, in, in this type of a, of a world or in the world that we're heading into as America, you're going to have to find a way to make yourself useful to the people around you. As you've described that, as you've elaborated on that in different books and in different things you've talked about, 
I've caught you saying a number of times that maybe you'd start a local newspaper. And certainly, you know, at, at the end, one of the, one of the guys starts talking about becoming useful to the town by doing such a thing. It just struck me as being one of those things where I feel like I can sense where your mind is going there and kind of almost see you as being that kind of a person. Well, let me tell you a very weird story. Oscar Wilde said that uh, life imitates art. And some very weird things have happened. I moved to this little town in Washington County, New York, two years ago, two years after I started writing these books. In fact, I had written the two previous books uh, completely um, living in Saratoga Springs. So I moved out here 15 miles east on the other side of the Hudson River. And so at the end of the third book, I have young Daniel finding, sort of stumbling across the old uh, penny saver newspaper office that has been abandoned and being uh, inflamed with the ambition to start a local newspaper. Uh, you know, he sees this as something that he wants to, uh, that he's very interested in. That happened in the third book. In the fourth book, I picked up again from that point and, you know, he's now in his newspaper office and just about beginning to publish his first edition. So uh, I'm, I'm riding down the street in, in, on my bike uh, a few weeks ago, and I see my friend Mark uh, working outside what used to be the building where the local newspaper was in. It was uh, sold and shut down quite a while ago, and, you know, it hasn't operated. Turns out that his, you know, 20-something son has bought the newspaper office and the print shop that goes with it and is planning to open the print shop. Wow. And I just thought, you know, this is so weird. You yeah, know, this is yeah. exactly why I was writing this scene right. this morning, where, you know, that took place in the guy's print shop. And then the kid was taking me on a tour of his print shop. Wow. And it, it, it was not much different from what I had imagined, you know, in the scene I was writing, you know, five hours earlier. Yeah. And there have been some other weird coincidences. Um, when I moved to this little old factory village of about 2,500 people, two years ago, two plus years ago. I found this little park or, or square in one corner of town, and there was a plaque in the little square uh, that was a tribute to the town founder, the guy who started the first flax mill in town, and his name was Job. <laughs> wow. That was after I'd written the first two books. Yeah, wow. Um, another weird coincidence that I, you know, this is very weird, but um, the town I live in now is called Greenwich. They pronounce it Greenwich, not Greenwich. But it's been through several name changes. It was originally named after this fellow named Job Whipple. Okay. And they called it Wh Whipple City. Wow. For the first 40 years of its life or so. But then, about 1830, it changed its name to Union. Of course, the, the name of uh, the town in my little book was called Union Grove. Right. And, I, you know, I, I had written these two books before I moved to this town. So there have been all these odd little coincidences that uh, are kind of, you know, examples of str this strange uh, synchronicity that's available to you in the universe. It tells, if you tune in. It tells you you've, you've found your right place, right? Well, in a way, it sort of does. I mean, it's, it's kind of weird, but yeah. Let me ask you about the fourth book. I'm assuming that life is going to get a little harder in terms of the food situation. No, I mean you're in the you're in the spring, and you know the eating cabbage all winter is what we used to what you would have had to do here in Minnesota. 
the farm I grew up on had still has to this day the old ice house. And, you know, you can, you walk into this building, it's a tool shed now, but you walk into this building and the floor, you could stomp on it and uh, it was hollow underneath and you could lift up a couple boards and that was where the ice used to go. And I used to envision these people, you know, getting to the end of March, early April, May, and not having a whole lot to eat because at that point in time, you would have gone through a, a lot of things. Is Am I on the right track or am I thinking too You are hard? absolutely on the right track. In okay. fact... That is the title of the book, of the fourth book, is a phrase that they used around here in this region, and the phrase was, the six weeks want. Oh, yeah. And it described that period from, you know, early April to uh, June or so, when you would run out of last year's crop and last year's stored food, but the new stuff was, had not come up enough in the, you know, in your, the garden to, uh, to be, really be edible. So... People had a very hard time in that middle spring period of of the year, and that's that's what's going on in this book. Although there are a lot of, in, you know, in the, in the third book, I kind of created a picture of this, uh, you know, the ultimate tea party, uh, authoritarian, despotic, you know, maniac politics, you know, in the, the Foxfire Republic and and loving Morrow. Right in the fourth book. Uh, my town's going to be invaded by uh, progressives from Great Barrington, Massachusetts, who are going to come and try to push them around. Uh, so I'm going to I'm going to try to cover all the political bases. <laughs> I can't wait. I want to ask you a couple current events questions, but uh, just one last thing about writing. I've really enjoyed your fiction work. I've really enjoyed your nonfiction work. Is it just a yin and yang for you, or is there one vein that you prefer over the other? Well, it's sort of a yin and yang. Uh, I've gotten used to it, and uh, I'm capable of doing both. You know, the main difference is that uh, in fiction, you don't have to be correct about anything. <laughs> you just have to be plausible. And it's a, it's a real pain in the ass to be correct about everything, so it's a real pain in the ass to write nonfiction books. <laughs> you know, you have to check everything and be right and, you know, study up. And uh, I do study up writing fiction because I, I, I want to be as plausible as possible, but I, I'm not that concerned about being correct. Yeah, is the editorial process different with fiction and nonfiction? No, for me it's not because I have such a, a, an aversion to being edited. Amen. Uh, I consider editors to be vermin who were put on earth just to annoy me. <laughs> so I, I seek to be edited as little as possible. And luckily, I've been accommodated and um, I haven't been pushed around too much. Yeah, yeah. I've heard you say that before and it was interesting because I heard Nassim Taleb say the same exact thing. And, oh, yeah. Uh, he, he refuses to have anything changed in his book. Yeah. He just... I live with a newspaper reporter. Uh, my, wife, uh -oh. my, my wife is a journalist. She will edit my stuff from time to time. That gets really difficult because you learn... For me, I don't want to say I hate my editors, but there's a part of it that's a, sometimes a necessary process to go through to make sure you're communicating well. But yeah. sometimes they just edit because that's what they're getting paid to do. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's actually worse with Hollywood producers for some reason. I, I don't know. You know, they they go in, they want to just tear your shit apart completely. Right. But uh, book editors also, they're paid to do this task, so then they, they do it. It's hard to uh, get them to use a light hand, but um, I just am so... Uh, 
untractable about this that uh, they just don't bother me that much. I'm thankful for that. My favorite word in the editing process is a word called stet, S-T-E-T, okay. which is uh, copy editing language for le- get your paws off of it, <laughs> leave it alone. Yeah. It um, just drives me crazy. Can I ask you a couple current events questions? Yeah. We're in this election season right now. For me, I've been someone who generally reads up on politics and follows the action and knows what's going on. I am just incessantly tuned out. I was going to say bored, but maybe bored is the right word. But I, I think our politics is sometimes just theater now anyway, not actual issues. Is there something different going on right now about elections? And, and are Americans, do you think, are giving up or ready to give up on this entire political charade we've been handed? It appears to have become more and more of a charade, I think, in the last 20 years. We, we seem to be unable to really generate any kind of meaningful discourse I don't think that'll go on forever. What I, I, I do think is that uh, it will end up discrediting both of the major parties, you know, and, and then what you'll see is institutional failure and, uh, you know, a sort of political disorder. And then something new will emerge from that that will be meaningful. I guess the one thing that's hard to tell is how long Americans will tolerate a completely, you know, meaningless political environment. All I can say is it won't go on forever. Right now, the distractions are pretty huge, and there hasn't been enough pain, I guess, inflicted on the the great wad of the American middle to bestir them to do anything about it. Uh, and of course, the danger is that when when they do bestir themselves, the political discourse is liable to become ever more extreme and and delusional and crazy. You know, you'll have uh, extreme right wingers, extreme left wingers, and and maybe the emergence of something that we even haven't seen before, that that just hasn't uh, appeared until, you know, until it does. So um, I, I'd say that uh, be prepared for a lot of strange political behavior. I could also very easily see the emergence of new parties because the the two ruling parties are now so obviously corrupt and useless that they've lost their meaning. I found myself actually intellectually feeling some sympathy for the Weimar Republic, who's like, <laughs> you know, we, we laugh at them, but yet here was a basically a group of people stuck between two polar craziness and, you know, their kind of wimpy approach or their, their kind of way to resolve that was to essentially not resolve it because they couldn't, yeah. you know, both sides were literally bad choices. You're so right on about that. You know, this may actually be America's Weimar moment, you know, uh, where Germany in, you know, 1922, I think you described it very well. The one thing that hasn't entered the picture is some kind of ruinous inflation, you know, and, right. and some kind of, uh, you know, terrible uh, currency crisis that would really, really make people lose faith in the, the folks who are running things. How are you enjoying this economic recovery? I, I see it's robust. We have all the realtors running around now selling homes again. Unemployment here in Minnesota is down. Our governor's running for re-election on a platform of, you know, I solved this problem and we got growth again. How are you enjoying the recovery? Are you, you sleeping well at night knowing we're on sound footing here? Well, I'm making a lot less money than I did before. 
Um, my book advances are much lower, be- and uh, that's partly because the publishing industry is disintegrating. You know, the trade, mainstream trade publishing is disintegrating. So my book advances are way lower, and, you know, uh, because we're in an era of wishful thinking, um, my lecture gigs are way down because people don't want to hear about the long emergency anymore. But on the other hand, you know, I'm making enough to get by. I made provision for this situation beforehand by having a very small mortgage. You know, I, I bought a house and put a lot of money down on it. I put solar electric on on my house when I had the dough to do it. As a consequence, you know, my electric bill in July was $17. And actually, my, wow. my bill in August was, was zero. Wow. I was able to stay a little ahead of the game. I uh, planted a very large garden and may, I built a very large garden when I moved here. I put up a kind of a greenhouse that's called a hoop house or a tunnel for growing stuff yep. in the, you know, through the cold part of the season. I saw the pictures. Well, it's um, impressive. I it's planted impressive. about 30 fruit trees and I, I just got chickens about three months ago. In fact, I'm looking at them right now. They're ranging through the little orchard outside my office. So I made provision to be able to live in a way that wasn't going to cost me a whole hell of a lot of money, but it still does, you know, it still costs money to live and I haven't gotten on any major vacations and, uh, you know, haven't bought a new car in quite a while and, and, uh, you know, I'm living kind of close to the bone myself, but I, I'm very productive. You know, I churn out a lot of books and, and I'm happy. I like the way my life is organized. Um, I, uh, get a lot of satisfaction from, the things that I do. And I, you know, I feel it's a purposeful life. So I'm not struggling with any sense of ennui or anomie. And uh, so, you know, life is good. Um, I had some collisions with the medical establishment last year, but, you know, I'm an elderly gentleman and things will happen, but I got over them. And, uh, you know, so I'm beyond that for a while, you know, waiting for the next catastrophe. It's funny, you mentioned the chickens, and we joined the CSA a few years ago. I grew up on a farm, and you know we had eggs all the time, and we had eggs every day. Yeah, I went through my cheese doodle phase uh, during undergraduate school and all that, and had gotten used to just store-bought eggs. And when I actually went back and had a farm-fresh egg again, I was astounded by the difference in taste and <laughs> texture and flavor. There's an, there's an enormous difference. You wouldn't think of it with eggs, right? I mean, I get it with green beans and with, with stuff you pull right out of the garden. But eggs, eggs, it's incredible. Yeah, well, you know, if, if, the, if the birds are ranging uh, and eating bugs and other natural stuff, you know, they're just going to produce better eggs and they're going to be healthier birds and, you know, they may be happier birds. I don't know really how you measure a bird's <laughs> psychology, but my, bird, my birds appear to be deliriously happy being able to run over, you know, uh, uh, two acres of uh, fenced, two, two acres is a lot of land. Yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, that's that's only the part of my land that is fenced. I had to put a deer fence up because uh, they were, the deer were living on the porch the first winter I was here. And, right. You know, I could never have I could never have grown a fruit tree with them around. So, so I have a deer fence around a lot of the property, and they these guys uh, and it, it will keep the chickens out. You know, the chickens won't get through it. So they range all over the place and they seem to be very happy. So I'm beginning to think that I would like to come back uh, in my next life as a chicken, (laughs) but the right right kind of chicken. Yeah. 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 All right. Last question here in Minnesota, we 
have this commuter rail line that runs north of Minneapolis-St. Paul into Minneapolis. And it's been now delayed over an hour many, many, many times because the track has to pause for the oil tankers to come through from North Dakota. This is one of these like cultural tension things where now we have this great windfall of oil. We're bringing down through the Dakotas. We're running it through Minnesota and kind of the whole rest economy has to stop. And, you know, it's, it's brought out all the usual people, the people who, you know, you've got the rail people, the rail advocates upset. You've got the pro oil economy, you know, you've got the jobs people. I keep going back to the notion that what's going on in Williston and what's going on in North Dakota, maybe this will go on for a long, long time, but I don't know as I would build up entire cities or run, you know, three parallel tracks of rail or what have you. How much confidence do you have in this North Dakota oil miracle continuing for, let's just say, a decade from now? I maintain that the shale oil scene is kind of a technological parlor trick. I think the truth of the matter is none of the companies are really making money off of shale oil. It costs them much more in capital expenditure than they're getting in in revenue any way you cut it. And they're faced with the additional problem that, you know, the wells deplete by half the first year and they're, they're done after three years. And that means that they have to keep up a tremendous amount of incessant drilling. And, you know, I agree with the folks like, uh, you know, Gail Tverberg and, and Jeffrey Brown and, and others, other commentators on the scene who say that, you know, the shale oil endeavor is going to founder on financing. We're not there now, but but I do believe that we're on the verge of entering a period of real capital scarcity. And that's simply because we haven't really been creating any new wealth. We've just been kind of swindling ourselves and pretending to create wealth in the financialization of the economy. But the consequence of that is there's not going to be any real capital available for the kinds of loans they need to continue the drilling operations that they're doing. A lot of the, the money that they're getting now is what I would call junk financing uh, and junk debt financing. And, uh, you know, that's certainly going to be one of the first things to go. So, you know, I think that shale oil will founder on financing primarily and founder on just its geological limits secondarily. And it's going to be a huge disappointment to the public who have been snookered into believing it will allow us to drive to Walmart forever. One of the things that I kind of thought we might see at some point, and it just started to happen, is some of these shale oil companies have started to buy each other out, start to consolidate. Yeah. And consolidation to me is always like a precursor for failure in a sense. I mean, if everything was going so well, you wouldn't yeah. be looking around for someone to merge with in a sense. I look up there and I'm not confident either that the stuff that we're building and putting in place is, is got a future at all. Yeah, well, the, all of the stuff that's going on in North Dakota and for that matter in Eagle Ford down in Texas, you know, it's already provisional stuff. When you see, you know, the government touting the business activity that's going on in North Dakota, you know, as being a, the, a wonderful example of a boom, you know, it, it, in fact, it, it really is an example of, of a, the most provisional and transitory kind of boom town that you see. You know, you get a lot of pop-up, cheap, 
you know, housing that is, that is going to fall apart in three and a half years. You know, you get you get crappy uh, dining establishments and cheap retail establishments, and and uh, you know, it's just the cheapest and worst most provisional kind of human settlement and uh, it's it's something that can easily blow away in 10 years and be as much of a ghost town as the ghost towns that you see in montana and colorado and and out west where you know uh the gold and the copper and the lead you know came and went it's just that this this is a resource that is going to go faster than copper gold and lead Jim, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I want to make sure people know the book is called The History of the Future. I will put links to it on the podcast site. Jim, you can read his blog every Monday over at his website. Jim, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. I really appreciate well, it. Well, thanks for asking me a lot of really intelligent questions. <laughs> well, I love the I book. I really appreciate it. I, I love the book. I love your work. And when you write the next one, I'll be the first one to buy it. Oh, yay. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thanks. You take care. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And keep doing what you can to build strong towns. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. What a horrendous gunshot wound. How come you're still standing? All right! Which one of you cutthroats done shot the boss in the gizzard, huh? Rascal! Will you hush up, you dodo? What? That's just paint! What? See? Hey, that's just paint. Yeah. Ooh, I'm just so happy, little fat buddy. (laughs) You ain't dead. I don't know what I'd do without you. I do. What? You'd give yourself a raise. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, what? what about them Duke boys and that girl? Bad news, bad news. I know it. <laughs>